Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia, and each episode I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Katherine Youngblood, Research Engineer and Director of Citizen Science for Marine Debris Tracker at the University of Georgia with me. How are you doing today, Katherine? I'm doing well, coming to you today from a, from a hotel again. So You're on the move. I know that you've been traveling a lot for our work, and you've been doing a lot of our circularity assessment protocols, or CAPS, we call them for short, in various places in the U.S., You've been in Ann Arbor, and now you're looking at rural recycling in Georgetown, South Carolina, for one of our US EPA projects. And one aspect of this work is looking at both what's available to the community in stores and then what ends up leaking out of the system onto the ground. And and I know you published a paper in Environmental Science and Technology on these two sort of bookends of the CAP last year about our sea-to-source Ganges work. We still use that same sampling method, the transect methods that we developed for that project and published in that paper. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe describe for our listeners what a transect is. Yeah, so typically we take a 10 by 10 square kilometer area in a community and then stratify it by societal activity. So we use a land uh, data set called LandScan, which is population count Uh, over a 24-hour period. So it's not just where people live, but also where people go within within a community during a given day. And we we take that and stratify it into different tertiles. So we have a high density area, a middle population area, and then a low activity level. And then from there, we select uh, three sites in each of those tertiles within a community. And then within those sites, we pick random areas to go actually conduct the transect. So they're typically 100 meters long by about one meter wide. And we record using Debris Tracker, we record everything we see within that transect. So um, everything from cigarette butts up to uh, bigger products like food wrappers and plastic bottles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to post a link to the paper uh, in the session notes from this episode. But also, I wanted to just sort of talk about a little bit what we've found. So what we found, uh, for example, in the transects along the Ganges River um, or in the Ganges River Basin is both kind of similar and yet different than what we find, for example, in the U.S., uh, where you and I have worked along the Mississippi River for the Mississippi River Plastic Pollution Initiative. I'm just curious if you would share some of your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so we followed a similar method along the Ganges and along the Mississippi and data sets that were pretty similar in size, around 100,000 litter items logged um, in, in total along both of those rivers. But interestingly, uh, along the along the Ganges and along the Mississippi, there were some things that were the same, uh, lots of tobacco products, although in the U.S. those tend to be a lot of cigarette butts and cigarillo wrappers. Um, in, in the Ganges, we saw a lot of tobacco sachets. 
um, and also food wrappers. Those were really common in, in both places as well. But mm -hmm. one thing that really stuck out to me is the, the difference in recyclable litter that we saw in these different watersheds. So along the Mississippi River, bottles and cans were in the top um, items of, of litter. So lots of, lots of bottles, lots of cans. Um, but along the Ganges River, we saw very few plastic bottles. And I think largely that's due to the activity of the informal sector and the value that bottles have for recycling there. And so we we really saw, you know, I think it was less than 1% of, mm -hmm. of um, the litter was, was plastic bottles in the Ganges, which is a drastically low number compared to what we saw in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because that relates to our guest today. So I'm so excited to have uh, Sonia Diaz joining us from WeGo. WeGo stands for Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. And I first met Sonia in person um, in early April of 2019. Uh, Sonia, you invited me to attend a meeting of, of WeGo uh, leaders in the waste picking communities from Senegal, Ghana and Argentina. I remember you had me present about plastic pollution because WeGo was working at connecting the informal sector with the prevention of plastic pollution. So this was kind of an overview um, of the issue for them. And so I was really, really so grateful to be there and to be able to meet everyone at that meeting. So you're listed as WeGo's Waste Specialist, which is a position you've had since 2008, but you have been active in the field so much longer. Your academic training is in sociology, but you are, uh, term yourself, and I would say that to a garbologist. So tell us a bit more about your background and your journey uh, on how you ended up at WeGo. Welcome. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm so uh, pleased to be here and sharing and learning uh, from you guys. Uh, well, I started my career as a sociologist. Uh, this uh, happened some, at some point in the mid 80s. And I started working in a slum upgrading project in my city, Belo Horizonte. Belo Horizonte is in the southeast of Brazil. And at that time, I was doing work mainly in terms of identifying what the needs of shanty towns were in terms of urban infrastructure. And one of the needs uh, that we mapped out with the community of Islam dwellers was solid waste uh, collection, regular solid waste collection in the favelas, how we say uh, Islam. Uh, and from that point onwards, I always worked with waste. It became like, you know, an addiction. And I started, uh, you know, years later to work in the city cleaning uh, agency where we were able to implement an integrated uh, waste management system in which amongst, you know, other uh, um, projects also included the inclusive recycling project in which we recognized and value the work of um, the then existing one uh, waste picker cooperative as part of the fundamental uh, waste system. 
And uh, it was after many years of practical engagement that I then decided to take an academic career and did my master's and also my PhD in political sciences, reflecting on the dilemmas of linking ways to citizenship. And after that, I did consultancy for many organizations and I joined WeGo and I've been there for uh, 15 years plus as a researcher and as a global expert for the WeGo uh, uh, network. Mm -hmm. That's about how long I've been at UGA. So you're just one, one year ahead of me with WeGo. Well, Sonia, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today and and get to learn a little bit more about your work. I've I've read a lot about what you've been doing, and I think it's so fascinating. Um, I'd love to hear a little more about what your current position at WeGo entails. Great, yeah, thanks. Uh, first, let me just uh, uh, briefly say what WeGo does. We do uh, research, we do advocacy, and we do action projects and we support uh, to build capacity of membership-based organizations of uh, the informal economy. And in doing that, we, especially in the work that we do on research, we uh, produce the evidence on the size, uh, the composition, the characteristics, and the contribution of uh, informal workers, home-based workers, domestic workers, street vendors, and way speakers. And it is uh, within this work that I do as uh, WIGU's uh, global waste specialist that I've been advising several local WIGU teams in, uh, in different countries uh, uh, around the world and advising also the waste speakers organizations in uh, those countries in terms of uh, of uh, what it needs for us to understand the urban waste systems and how uh, waste speakers can contribute uh, to municipal systems. So supporting them with documentation and evidence. Uh, apart from that, we also do this work in terms of trying to influence international organizations such as the ILO, uh, UN Habitat, UN Women, uh, and other uh, UN uh, uh, organizations of the UN systems, and also foundations, so that they really learn um, much more about uh, way speakers' contributions in terms of uh, green economies and uh, circular economies. And besides my kind of uh, global work, I am very grounded uh, in my country, doing not only uh, work in my, my city, Belo Horizonte, but also in many other cities across Brazil. And this has been, for me, the key elements of my work because it enables me to really 
make those connections between local to global, global to local, uh, fostering, you know, translocal and transnational kind of links. And in the work that I do in Brazil, my work is pretty much focused on gender uh, and waste. Uh, I've been leading uh, uh, work for more than 10 years to raise the issues of gender empowerment within the national movement of waste pickers of Brazil, the Brazilian national movement. I also uh, do work on OHS, occupation and health, mapping risks, health risks, and also carrying out intervention projects uh, like workshops for ergonomics so that workers can uh, improve their uh, health within the, the, their workspaces. And I've also been mapping recently, I've been mapping climate change impacts. We are leading a, a research, national research, mapping what are the perceptions waste speakers have on climate change. Also, um, starting to build a baseline in terms of the impacts that they identify from extreme uh, uh, weather events. And I also follow up, uh, you know, dump closure processes. It's a very varied kind of a work that uh, builds from the local to the global and includes advocacy, research, and also action, working hand in hand with uh, workers as organizations and the NGOs that support them. That's amazing. I, I think what WeGo is doing is so important. So so thank you for, for the work you're doing. I think it's really powerful how you've been able to, to bring a spotlight to the informal sector, especially in this global conversation on plastic pollution, and then also doing that community-based work that informs that. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, millions of people are in this world that I think many people don't realize and and you and your team really help to illustrate that so people can see behind that curtain so when we were together in senegal and and talking there to me we was one of the first organizations to work to start documenting the informal sector on how they were helping to prevent plastic pollution to me it seemed like there had been a misconception that they were contributing to it and so I was so excited when you asked me to come to that meeting and we're talking about how you were working to help document how they were preventing plastic pollution. I think we see that now through our data. And so just tell us a little bit more about how that came to be and, and why that work is so important. Yes, we, you know, in the work, uh, particularly one of the earliest works uh, on waste at Wigo was the work that uh, we were doing. It built from the work that we were doing here in Brazil. Not only the work that I did it myself, but the networks that I worked with here in my country. And as early as uh, you know, the mid '90s, networks that I worked with here, particularly uh, the Observatory for Inclusive Recycling. Mm which is a multi-stakeholder kind of a 
informal network with universities, with uh, cooperatives, uh, uh, waste pickers cooperatives and NGOs like Vigo, we have been doing a lot to support uh, Brazilian workers in terms of highlighting their contribution to waste in general and also in terms of curbing uh, plastic pollution. We started two decades ago, uh, for instance, when um, we supported the plastic recycling plant with waste pickers to help them, you know, move up the chain. We, you know, the work that we have been doing uh, really uh, has been focusing on highlighting uh, what the contribution of informal uh, waste workers give to value uh, to this urban solid waste systems, you know, city systems, but also to the value chains. Mm -hmm. And we have done a lot of research in many geographies to document uh, threats and opportunities uh, waste pickers face. We have been, through our reducing uh, waste for coastal cities, focusing on trying to document the contribution of workers in uh, reducing greenhouse gases. And we have also invested a lot in terms of building capacity of workers so that they can cope with occupational and health problems and other technical uh, and communication skills that they need to build capacity on. So uh, our work has been yeah, very broad. And uh, one also one of the key things is around really opening channels for workers to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so key. And we're going to expand upon that later. But I, I really like how now you've talked about documenting the greenhouse gas emission reduction from the work that they do. So not only the plastic pollution reduction, but moved into climate. And we know those two are very connected as well. You mentioned yeah. opportunities for, for the informal sector. With our global energy and excitement around developing circular economies, What? how do you see the informal sector fitting into circular economy? Critiquing uh, the circular economy approach, which is too much focused on materials, and, and, and rightly so as a departure point, but you know it kind of lacks an understanding of broader issues. And one of the things that we have been trying to uh, support workers is uh, really to identify where in the circular economies models, we can build some, uh, some influence towards more inclusive circular economy models. And, in practical terms, you know, the intersection between waste speakers and, and circular economy tends to materialize itself in EPR systems. Uh, in the particular geography that I'm in, in Latin America, countries like Brazil and Argentina, we have been advocating for and have managed in the case of Brazil, for instance, to really influence our APR uh, law towards uh, mandating that companies include waste pickers. So I see the circular economy as 
an opportunity, yes, but I think there's still a lot to be done in terms of securing the systems that are implemented really factor in impacts on jobs and particularly impacts on jobs in the informal economy. So uh, as we go, we facilitated and supported a two to three years working group in which we discussed with specialists and way speakers representatives what were the threats and also the opportunities for inclusive EPR and how they these inclusive systems could be a kind of a demonstrative example for circular economy uh, models. So there's still a lot to do for us to really be sure that circular economy models are inclusive for the working poor. Mm -hmm. That's such an important point. I think for something to really be sustainable, it needs to be sustainable for, for individuals and communities as well. I think that's really important that you guys are highlighting that. Mm -hmm. And just for some of our listeners, EPR is Extended Producer Responsibility. So um, this is where, as, as Sonia just mentioned, the companies that are producing the products either provide resources or somehow help with responsibility of the material at its end of end of life or end of cycle as well. So there's a lot of regulations happening around the world uh, related to EPR to try and help with this issue. I really also love how you brought up the circular economy might be a little bit narrow in its definition. It misses some of those broader issues. And I want to bring up one of those right now, talking about dump sites. You you mentioned that as sort of in your portfolio of projects, amazing that your portfolio is so diverse on what you're working on. So, you know, I know that, that dump sites are the livelihood of thousands or millions of people around the world. And I visited them. Um, I visited one in, in Senegal when we were there. And when I'm there, people are very concerned that the site is going to be closed because that's where they work, right? And so obviously there are challenges to manage this from the standpoint of that it's informal and, and people are you know who are working there, they deserve better protection, occupational health and safety, and better working conditions. But I, I would love to hear how you think about this in terms of considering this is the place that they work. They don't want to see it shut down, but it might be more protective of the environment if it is. And so this is really key. The other aspect of, of when I've uh, visited communities here. A lot of folks have migrated from other countries. So just would love for you to share your perspective. Thank you, because this is one of uh, uh, the issues that I work with, which is really close uh, to my heart, mm. actually, mm -hmm. you know, because when you visit an open down, you know, what you see there is not only a situation that is adverse, in terms of uh, affecting the environment, uh, you know, the pollution, soil, where air and water mm -hmm. contamination, but also it really is not a safe place uh, for workers to work in uh, and endangers human health. Mm -hmm. We have many uh, reports on fires, landslides, trucks, worker accidents, and many other issues. I was once in a dump in 
Ahmedabad mm. in India, and I was, you know, uh, walk, walking my way with the workers around uh, 4.30 in the morning mm -hmm. up to the place where they were going to work that day, and we were chased by wild dogs. You know, there are so many risks mm -hmm. uh, that really is not a safe place to work in. But the, the thing is, it's a livelihood, you know, for many, many, many workers around the world. And for us, our departure point as we go is that it's important to really address the issue of uh, open dump sites. It's really important to address the issue of um, open burning. And uh, with climate change, you know, issues, environmental issues, this has become really really urgent and the pressure to close open dumps is increasing mm -hmm. and it is in and the fact that this is happening what is uh important for us to understand is that it's done all this pressure to close the dumps are done in ways it's hastily it seldom address both aspects of the issue we Depart from an understanding, as we would, that uh, while, it, while closing uh, open dumps, it's important for environmental, for health, and for ethical, even ethical reasons. The social impacts uh, um, on the livelihoods of workers must be assessed and addressed uh, comprehensively, you know, and... Uh, Drafting livelihood plans should be a, a really uh, crucial component of any dump closure process. But however, what is happening is not so. In the case of uh, Dakar that you visited when you were there, we are now facing a huge battle for, for with the Waste uh, World Bank and uh, the uh, national agency overseeing the process, you know, they haven't done a, a very uh, uh, realistic diagnosis, assessing what the issues are and proposing livelihood alternatives for the dump pickers that are going to be uh, uh, driven away of uh, this uh, dump site. They haven't had any proposal in terms of uh, remodeling the urban uh, solid uh, waste system to create a, 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 an alternative for workers to do segregation at source collection. So this is key and it's being done in ways that are not really comprehensive. Uh, the World Bank, for instance, when they lend money to countries, the only thing that they ask is a livelihood restoration plan. Okay, great that we start from there, but these plans are seldom uh, drafted in ways that are participatory. And when they are drafted and they may even be a very good livelihood restoration plan, there is no strategy for implementation for monitoring uh, of uh, how it is being implemented and how each uh, policy that was desired in the plan is actually uh, affecting uh, livelihoods. So this for us is very crucial. 
you know, we do need to, uh, uh, the, the uh, organizations that fund governments to understand that they have a core responsibility in the pacts, you know, be it positive, which seldom is, you know, it's seldom positive, usually negative. And we need to really uh, call the international community to reassess how closure of dump sites are done. Yeah, it's so important. And I think you make a really good point about you can have a plan on paper, but first of all, if you don't have all of the voices who are involved in that plan, involved in it from the get-go, then it, it may be completely rejected, or you don't have a strategy for implementation, and then it just is words on a paper. So both of those are really, really key to get their voices at the table. Thank you for, for saying that. I think this is especially important in the context of the Global Plastics Treaty, um, which is currently under discussion and specifically highlights the informal sector and the role they could play. Um, what are your recommendations for in, including informal sector communities and the roles they can play in this broader global plastics conversation? And do they have enough access to the process for their voice to be heard in these conversations that are happening now? Yes, uh, I think the, the treaty, the plastic treaties, uh, might be one of the most important developments in the last years in this sector. And from our perspective, it's really, we're very happy that uh, uh, way speakers are participating in the process. But one key thing, again, I, I go back to things that for me are very crucial. Uh, what we see usually is that those conventions or treaties are drafted. They may have uh, concerns related to informal workers. If you, you know, if you look at the Basel Convention or the Minamata, you know, the issue of uh, uh, way speakers is there, even though it's not comprehensive. But at least they were aware of it. But it becomes a paper. You know, mm -hmm. it's there in the convention, and it, it, there, there are no no clear strategy on how things are really going to go from a convention to really uh, be implemented on the ground. So mm -hmm. I think this is one of the key things that we do need to have a just transition roadmap a uh, just transition roadmap sensitive to gender equality, sensitive to having funds for the implementation of policies that can support workers, you know, in terms of keeping their livelihoods and improving it and improving uh, their ability to uh, process plastics in the way that we will need them to do. And I think this is why we have been teaming up with different um, organizations like Grid Arendal, uh, USAID, and we're drafting policies and briefs with policy recommendations, and we're trying to 
influence the international alliance of way speakers you know it's busy trying to influence countries that may be kind of friendlier to the inclusion we do need to arrive at a process in which the way speakers are part of the drafting process but that we have very clear plans to implement and monitor how policies designed uh, at this more general, uh, high level. That monitoring aspect has come through a little bit in our data. We should connect on that more, I think. It's so powerful, and thank you for your work bringing their voices to that process, which you said is is something so significant, probably one of the, the most significant changes in this space since this began an issue. So, okay, I want to talk a little bit about the stigma against the informal sector for a minute. I mean, I I see them struggle with this, you know, any waste worker, to be honest, time after time, you know, workers are unrecognized, disrespected for what they do. Working in waste is hard because people see it as gross, something they want to get as far away from them as possible, you know, as soon as possible. But I think about if if waste workers weren't doing their job, all this waste would be piling up and everyone would certainly notice and be very unhappy. So I would love to hear from you. How do we work towards this community in general, formal or informal waste workers getting more respect and, and recognition for what they do? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is such an important uh, issue. I think uh, sanitation workers at large, they are very stigmatized. If you think about, for instance, pit scavengers uh, and be it formal or informal, working mm-hmm. with waste and uh, sanitation, it, it's a sector where stigma is high. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when I started working with uh, waste, uh, back in the, in the mid-80s, it was like that here in my city and in Brazil in general. And things, you know, I'm not saying that's perfect here, but uh, there were substantive changes since I started working. And in, in my city, for instance, my, my in my master's, one of the key things I did was to document, go to our archives, public archives, and see how waste speakers were portrayed uh, there. You know, how in the documents from the cleaning agency, uh, how were they, the, 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 how they were reported? And you know, the words that I I read in these archives were criminals, vagrants. A lot of uh, negative words being used for these uh, workers and a lot of uh, what we call it the cleaning raids, you know, uh, operations in which the police would come and take them away and uh, confiscate their materials. As I said earlier, I worked in the city and I worked with an amazing team. I had this opportunity to, the head of our cleaning agency was an engineer that I had been working with uh, for many years. She had that kind of a social approach to engineering and together with a wonderful team that she managed to, to engage at that point in time, one of the key things that we did was to address the issue of stigmatization. And to do so, 
we created a department of social mobilization and we wanted to change the city's view about our formal uh, collectors of waste mm -hmm. and also about the informal workers. And we did that by employing a crew of experts, which included architects, engineers, educators, sociologists, psychologists, and artists. We created a theater group in our department because we thought that to change people's perceptions, you need facts and reach them here, you know, the, uh, it's like their minds, but you have to reach them in their hearts. And it was through the efforts that we carried out employing, deploying a lot of uh, strategies, like we created a carnival, okay? Every year, Brazil Brazilians love carnival. Every year would go to the street to have the waste pickers carnival parade in which we, together with waste pickers and formal uh, 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 collectors, we would be dressed in a costumes made out of recycled, uh, uh, recyclable materials. And we would establish a kind of dialogue with uh, the citizens saying, look, waste can be something else. And those who work to, uh, uh, with waste, they should be valued. So it is... What I'm trying to say here is that to address stigmatization, we, we need a comprehensive approach. Mm -hmm. We need to target different sectors of society. We need to have a clear strategy and a plan. And to change mindsets, we really have to be, uh, you know, involve the way speakers also in the planning process of how we can confront and challenge stigmatization. So I think it's important to have, you know, a plan yeah. and a plan that tackles, we use facts, but also hearts. Yeah. That's why culture is so important. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that's proven if you can reach people's hearts and emotions, they are going to remember what they've learned, whether it be science or about looking at waste completely differently, wearing it, you know, as an outfit, being creative, that interdisciplinary approach. And I think also changing the language. Um, you know, as you went back in history and saw what people were called, one of our projects where we were meeting with folks on one of our caps, they had a, a term that wasn't great for the, the community of waste pickers at the landfill, and we called them waste pickers, and they're like, oh, I guess we could call them that. I think that was even just a change right there to realize that they were they were contributing positively to the waste management system there. So I think that makes a huge difference. Thank you. One of the things that we've talked about a couple times on this conversation is the the delta between plans and good intentions and and actually implementing those plans, especially when waste pickers aren't involved in in developing those plans. But I know, Sonia, that you've worked a lot with cooperatives of informal workers that have joined forces and been able to make change from a, a grassroots development. So could you give us an example of a group that has made change by working together? 
Yeah, I'll give you two examples. One, uh, just to uh, coming back to the example of my own city, uh, Belo Horizonte, and then Argentina, uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina. In my city, uh, by designing our new integrated solid waste system, we engaged with the cooperative, existing cooperatives and NGOs that were supporting them at that time. And we started planning our uh, system in ways that they felt uh, recognized. And we started by, you know, hiring them and providing them uh, payment for the work that they did in collecting and sorting, and also providing structure for sorting. So like sorting spaces and working gear, and many uh, other uh, policies that we implemented in integrating the waste pickers in Belo Horizonte. Another example is the example of Buenos Aires in Argentina. The city of Buenos Aires has uh, integrated the cartoneros, that's how uh, the waste pickers are called there. And they have uh, been paying the work of the cartoneros through what they call it a social salary. They have rented and also uh, constructed sorting centers and materials recycling facilities. They have been providing uh, the cartoneros uh, with crashes for, uh, uh, so that the mothers can uh, really have a safe place to leave their, their kids. And they have been engaging them also as environmental agents. Uh, they have uh, a, a program called Promotores Ambientales, uh, 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 environmental promoters, in which way speakers, women way speakers, are engaged to do door-to-door -door, uh, sensitization about recycling. So this could be two uh, kind of a very uh, uh, examples, but we have in Puna as well in um, uh, the work that uh, the city of uh, Pune uh, did and still does uh, with uh, the integration of Swatch Cooperative, mm -hmm. uh, employing them to do door-to-door -door collection of household wastes and allowing them to uh, uh, have access uh, to recyclables uh, in this uh, service provision scheme that they implemented together. Mm -hmm. That's super important, especially um, as we're having these global conversations, these, these examples of how informal sector workers have been compensated and recognized for the work they're doing and the community good that they're providing. Mm -hmm. And we've done a cap in Pune, so we saw that our local implementation partner um, really talked about Swatch and, and the amazing work that was happening there. So we're on to our final thought, Sonia, and part of the reason we bring guests on is to hear different perspectives. We know that systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representative perspectives and voices at the table. 
So we ask a similar question to every guest. And uh, in terms of what we've been di- discussing today, which of course is, is the informal sectors, what voices are either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And then the second part to that question is how do we make that happen? Yes, thanks. Well, as I said, uh, way speakers' voices are beginning to be heard Mm -hmm. uh, in many processes, including the the plastic treaty. But I think uh, one of the things that uh, is needed, it's really to embrace uh, the fact that we need to go beyond drafting principles for integration of workers. We really need to go one step further and ensure that, you know, particularly in in this treaty, we have an implementation plan. We have a systematic monitoring of whatever uh, the treaty designs in terms of uh, acknowledgement uh, of, uh, of the informal workers. We also need to do systematic documentation of the impacts uh, because sometimes policies, not sometimes, but very often, uh, policies have unintended effects that we mm-hmm. really need to uh, have a documentation and assessment on the go as it starts to be implemented. Because it's this that will really enable us to steer the process back towards more effective uh, transformation and more positive impacts. And, uh, you know, people are, the buzzword of the moment is just transition. And it's just transition is a very important kind of a concept for us to, you know, to depart from. But a just transition is not only about uh, drafting a roadmap for integration or inclusion, it's actually ensuring that the whole roadmap is implemented effectively and as inclusive as possible. And we do need to factor in uh, the different uh, needs of workers around the world. We have workers in different geographies working in the former economy, even in the global north. So we need to be Mm -hmm. able to uh, really have policies that cater for for all of them so that we make sure that we leave no one behind. Yeah. Thank you, Sonia, for sharing that. And we wanted to thank you again for all your incredible work over the years and and your dedication to illustrating the power of the informal sector and advocating for for voices that aren't always heard, especially your advocacy for women in the informal sector. Mm -hmm. Thank you for such a deep and rich conversation, for your leadership and perseverance. Um, We so appreciate you sharing. You have such a wealth of knowledge, your experience, and I think we really saw your heart today. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, guys. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to all our listeners for taking time out of your day to join us on the AquaThread. Thread.